Matthew chapter 4, we're looking at the temptation of Christ. This is part 2. And we've actually come to the temptations. Last week was almost all, well, basically introductory, very important material. But today we get into the temptations, and I'm going to go into a lot of detail on the first temptation because uh, we're going to discuss it is written quite a bit, and that's going to be, uh, we won't need to rediscuss it for the second temptation. But let me read 1 to 11, Matthew 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Then when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on a pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, and he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, It is written, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up to an exceedingly high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world, and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord, your God, and him only you shall serve. The Senate, the reading of God's holy word, you'll note it is written three times, three temptations. It is written, it is written, it is written. These three temptations... After a casual reading of the scriptures, you're just sitting down relaxing, having a cup of coffee. Seem very simple and straightforward. But whenever they are analyzed in the narrow and broad context of scripture, we will see that they are subtle, clever, and complex in their design. They are adapted to the circumstances and are very theological in their implications. Well, let's look at it. That's the first temptation. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. 4.3 The tempter comes to Jesus for the purpose of deceiving him and causing him to sin. It is likely that the devil took on some form of an external physical manifestation for this purpose. And not the appearance of a hideous monster, but something mild and pleasant. A comely being. We're told Satan appears as an angel of light. He doesn't appear as a hideous monster. His goal is to deceive. When the devil spoke his words, they were real, audible words. If you were there, you could have heard him yourself. Well, there are a number of things about this temptation that are noteworthy. First, note that Satan adapted the temptation to the circumstances at hand. He tempted a very hungry, famished man 
with delicious, nutritious bread. The temptation fits the circumstances. The devil is cunning and quickly molds his arguments to deceive and cause to stumble in every conceivable situation. We must be aware of this fact and be on guard for every occasion. How many multitudes of people throughout the uh, ages have adopted unbiblical views of civil government and committed themselves to a tyrannical messianic statism for the promise of bread taken from another man's hands? And here's what Matthew Henry writes, and it, it's wonderful. Note, Want and poverty are a great temptation to discontent and unbelief. And the use of unlawful means for our relief under pretense that necessity has no law. And it is excused with this, that hunger will break through stone walls, which yet is no excuse for the law of God ought to be stronger to us than stone walls. Auger Praise against poverty, not because it is affliction and reproach, but because it is a temptation. Lest I be poor and steal. Those, therefore, who are reduced to straits have need to double their guard. It is better to starve to death than live and thrive by sin. And it's the whole basis of statism. These rich people have more than they need. You don't have what you need. We're just going to steal their money through coercive taxation. Oh, we have a crisis and you're renting an apartment or a house. You don't have to pay your rent for a year and a half or two years. Too bad for the old person that owns the house. They can just go bankrupt. All these things are based on the idea of poverty and they're all satanic because they violate the law of God. Second, this temptation is a challenge to Jesus' divine sonship and its role in the incarnation as the suffering servant. And of course, you're familiar with Isaiah 53, uh, Psalm 22. There are many, many passages that speak of the suffering Messiah that has to die to eliminate the guilt and penalty of his people. And only somebody totally spiritually blind would deny that. It's so clear. By the way, Jews before the coming of Christ, a very popular interpretation of Isaiah 53 was that it referred to the Messiah and that he would have to suffer in some sense for his people. After Jesus came and they rejected Christ and they rejected true religion, they rejected biblical Christianity, it became the people of Israel or the suffering servant, which is a farce. First of all, they're not without sin, so they can't be in atonement. And secondly, uh, it's all about a person. It's all in the singular. It's just bad exegesis. It's clearly trying to circumvent the truth. Satan begins his challenge with an if. If you are the Son of God. God the Father had just declared, Matthew 3.17, the last verse of chapter 3, right before the temptation, God had just declared, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Consequently, there was no need for Jesus to prove anything. 
God said it. That settles it. What God had said was certainly true. And the idea that needed to be demonstrated and proved by a miracle is disrespectful to God the Father and is an exhibition of a lack of faith in what God had just spoken. A true son would not doubt his father and act as though the father's word needed empirical demonstration. A genuine son will trust the father and will patiently wait to be fed by the father's hand. Jesus knew the character of God, obviously. Jesus knew what God had said. There's absolutely zero reason to doubt. And to show any doubt would be sinful. And that's what Satan's trying to do. Very similar to what happened with Eve. The devil does not want the divine son in his incarnation to rely on, fully trust, and thus obey the father's plan and will. And there's deep theology behind this. I'll be very brief. In what the theologians call the covenant of redemption, it's the agreement between the triune God before all eternity and the counsels of God, the, uh, the covenant of redemption, the Father agreed to send the Son to save the elect, a certain group of mankind. The Son agreed to come to earth to assume a human nature, perfectly obey God's plan of redemption, and submit to the Father's will in everything, even the death of the cross. The Holy Spirit, of course, agreed to apply that redemption to the elect and to anoint Jesus beyond measure, etc. Satan immediately seeks to break the harmony between God the Father and God the Son and bring the whole plan of redemption into ruin. Pretty clever. Because it sounds very innocent on the surface. Hey, you're hungry. You're God. Create some bread. We are reminded of the serpent's tactic when he tempted Eve in the garden. <clears throat> God had explicitly ordered Adam and Eve, but in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Genesis 2.15. Now, they could eat everything else. There were all kinds of trees. There, there are literally in the world, there are probably thousands of different kinds of fruit trees. I was amazed. I preached in Brazil years ago, and at breakfast they had... Uh, like six different kinds of fruit juice, four of which I'd never heard of before. But Satan said to Eve, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Genesis 3, 4 to 5. So Yahweh, God had issued a direct order with a warning of judgment. If you do A, then B will follow. And it will most certainly follow. The Hebrew in that is emphatic. Dying, you shall die. You shall surely die. It's a fact. It's certain. Satan first denied God's promise of judgment, B, then promised a reward for disobedience, A. Satan wanted Eve to first disbelieve God's word in order to disobey God's word. And this is a theme throughout the whole Bible. 
the book of Hebrews, analyzing why Israel, they, they died in the wilderness. The, the, that generation had, had to die and were not allowed to go into the promised land. He says they, they disobeyed. They wouldn't obey God. And then he says the reason they wouldn't obey God is because they didn't believe. They didn't have faith. So God killed them all off. They're di they died in their rotting bodies in the wilderness. They're a testimony. Once Eve doubted what God had said, she relied on her own wisdom, that is human autonomy, that is you're seeking your own wisdom apart from God's revelation. She analyzed the truth empirically. She looked at the trees. She looked at the, the forbidden tree and said, boy, it's pleasing to the eye. The fruit looks really delicious. It looks really good. She did her science. She did her empiricism. And then she disobeyed based on her own independent thought from God. Similarly, Satan was attempting to trick Jesus into rejecting God's word and submitting God's word to a test. Jesus, you're God. You can create bread. You don't need to trust in what God has said. Do your own thing. The idea could be expressed as follows. You do not expect me to simply accept what God has said about you. Why don't you turn these stones into bread so that I have tangible proof? In both temptations, Satan presents himself as very reasonable, very rational, and concerned for the person he is tempting. You're hungry, Jesus. You need food. It's reasonable for you to create bread. With Eve, the devil wants her and Adam to disobey God's plan of godly dominion through faith and persevering in obedience, the covenant of works, and to seek the kingdom through human autonomy or independence from God's word, God's plan. With Jesus, Satan seeks to drive a wedge between the Son and the Father so the Son will seek the kingdom apart from the Father's will. Do you see what's going on here? Very similar. In both temptations, the devil appears very reasonable and very concerned. In both, he skillfully lies and subtly twists and perverts the truth. In both instances, his goal is autonomy from God and his word in order to establish a satanic version of the kingdom or dominion. Satan is all about autonomy. And if you study the cults and you study Satanism, it's all about you get to do what you get to be your own God. You get to do what you want. That's why Satanism is so popular today, because secular humanism teaches the same thing. Secular humanism is satanic to the core. And when the Democrats appeal to African-Americans and poor people and so forth, it's always we care about you. We care about your children. And then they go on to do things that actually destroy their communities and destroy their families. The worst thing to ever happen to blacks was the welfare state. With Adam, he achieved a victory. But with Jesus, he got his head crushed and his kingdom destroyed. Where Adam failed, Jesus was con conquered. Now, the main issue in this dialogue, let's make this clear. Satan knows that Jesus is God. He's... It, Satan doesn't need to be convinced. This is all a ploy. The main issue in this dialogue is not that Satan really doubts Jesus' divinity and wants him to prove it, but rather that since he is God's son, fully God in every way, 
He should start acting like God. To paraphrase the idea behind this temptation, and you could translate if a sense, and a lot of modern translations do, since you are the Son of God, it is beneath your dignity and your exalted status to suffer like this. What are you doing suffering such deprivation? You're God. You have the ability to turn these rocks into loaves of bread. Why don't you do so in order to honor who you are? What are you doing suffering like this? Why are you hungry? You could turn these rocks into bread with just a word. Do it. The devil wants Jesus to deny the very purpose of the incarnation. His state of humiliation. That is our Lord's willingness to suffer, be rejected, be treated as scum by his own people, to be falsely accused, betrayed, unjustly condemned, tortured and crucified. Totally a state of humiliation. And he voluntarily took that upon him, if, uh, Philippians chapter 2. The question is one of obedience to the will of the Father and the very nature of the kingdom that Christ came to establish. Satan is in favor of a power religion. Jesus, exalt yourself. What are you doing suffering like this? What are you, why are you hungry? You're God! This is, this is embarrassing. There's, look at these rocks. Make them into bread. That is a philosophy based on human autonomy, self-exaltation, and the use of force to establish a kingdom of men, a kingdom of power, a kingdom of men that follow satanic principles. That's what Satan's going for here. Now, Jesus came to submit to the Father's will, to suffer, be rejected, and die a sacrificial death in order to establish a kingdom of grace. Not, not a kingdom of coercion. The kingdom, that's Islam. Islam is a perversion of the biblical kingdom. So is Judaism, where they rejected the Messiah because they wanted a Messiah to come and kick the Romans' rear end. That's not how Jesus operates. He operates by dying on the cross, rising from the dead. He's king over the nations, and his gospel spreads like leaven. As men are regenerated, men are changed from the inside out. They're not changed from the outside in. What does China want to do when they have a problem with Muslims? It locks them up, sterilizes them, kills a bunch of them, tortures them. That's not how the gospel spreads. That's Satan's plan. The cross must precede the crown. Humiliation precedes exaltation. The kingdom spreads as the Holy Spirit regenerates dead hearts due to the efficacy of Jesus' redemptive work, and men believe in the gospel. Satan, in the name of Jesus' sonship, is attempting to get Jesus to deny a fundamental aspect of that sonship. The unity of purpose between the persons of the triune God. Remember, the Holy Spirit sent him out there to suffer. And it was according to the Father's will that he suffer. The devil wants our Lord to act on his own, for his own glory now which is also a denial of the covenant of redemption. And if Jesus had done that at the beginning, this is the beginning of his ministry. This is the first thing that happens after his anointing. It would have been all over. The Satan would have won. In addition, 
Satan's temptation is an attempt to get Jesus to fail in his role as the second Adam, or as he's called in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, the last Adam, who must obey the Father's test and fulfill all righteousness as the elect's covenantal representative. Adam failed. Adam was tested. Adam failed. Eve was tested in a more, much more severe way than Adam was. Adam was in paradise. He had hundreds of trees he could eat from. Jesus was fasting after 40 days in a desert, surrounded by dirt and rocks. Hungry, famished. At where Adam failed, Jesus conquered. The Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to triumph over temptation and succeed where the first Adam had disobeyed. The tempter was not only calling into question God's word and the whole intertrinitarian plan of redemption, but also was calling upon Jesus to reject the anointing and leading of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness. And yes, the Holy Spirit is God of very God. There are three persons in the Godhead. As the baptism of Jesus was a trinitarian action, showing both the unity of the Godhead and the unity of their plan of salvation, Satan seeks both a perversion of the unity of the Godhead and the outworking of their plan of salvation. Now, I know people deny the Trinity all the time, and that's all the cults do, Jews do, Muhammad's didn't do, obviously atheists do. Everybody denies the Trinity, but it's all over the scriptures, and if you don't believe in the Trinity, you can't even understand the Bible or redemption. He wants Jesus to strike out on his own, separate from the Father and the Holy Spirit. He wants the Son to essentially declare independence from the Father and the Holy Spirit for a worldly power religion instead of a religion of grace and salvation from sin. That's what's going on here. The devil's appeal is similar to that in the garden. And that one, he's saying, look, you deserve it. The father does not have your back. He does not have your best interest in mind. You deserve this, Jesus. You're the son of God. Two, you can have instant gratification and dominion now. Why go through all that pain and process that obedience requires? Instant gratification. You see what the devil's doing? How clever this is? It's very clever. It sounds very simple, but it, it is, well, it is simple, but it's extremely clever in what he's doing. Well, let's look at the Savior's response, and this is extremely important. But he, that is Jesus, answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Matthew 4.4 4. This answer is deep, and it is brilliant. And there are a number of things to note regarding it that are very important. First, note that Jesus does not allow Satan to influence his own response according to the devil's assumptions. The devil's suggestions or implications are not considered as genuine or trustworthy or worthy of debate on the tempter's own presuppositions for even one second. Jesus sticks right with God and right with the word. He doesn't 
allow Satan to set the argument up or Satan to, he doesn't follow the Satan's presuppositions. The implied distress of the Father's plan and will and supposed need for Christ to separate his will and plan from the Father is rejected immediately and emphatically. Jesus doesn't take what God has said, what the Father has said, and set it aside to debate philosophically on how to live according to autonomous human reason or empiricism based on human autonomy. He doesn't subject the word of God to a debate on human autonomy and autonomous human reason or autonomous empiricism. And it's a shame, it's frustrating watching these knuckleheads on TV that debate these evangelicals that debate these atheists. And they do such a horrible job. Because uh, this, this, uh, this method of apologetics, which says we have to pretend the Bible's not the word of God to prove the Bible's the word of God, and we have to act uh, only according to empiricism, we have to act autonomous empiricism and autonomous reason to, in order to attempt to prove that the Bible's the word of God, such thinking is ludicrous and contrary to what Christ does here. Our Lord does the exact opposite of what Eve did in the garden. He does not treat God's word as a, or plan as something that, we must, that must be subjected to autonomous human reason or scientific observation before we decide whether there is enough evidence to believe and obey it. If you don't presuppose the triune God of Scripture, the ontological trinity, as Van Til would say, if you don't assume that, if you don't presuppose that, if you don't stand upon that, if you don't stand upon the inspired, infallible, inerrant, perfect word of God, 66 books of the Bible, if you don't stand upon that when you debate a pagan or an atheist or a so-called agnostic, which is a, just an, a politer form of atheism, you can't win any debate because that is the precondition, the presupposition of all knowledge. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Jesus' presupposition for truth and ethics is the triune God and his infallible word. The moment that Eve doubted God's word and subjected it to human reason and, and empirical observations, she had placed Satan's word and God's word on the same level. Well, here Satan said this, God said this, I'm going to decide for myself autonomously based on empiricism and human reason what I think is right. And she looks at the tree and says, man, that's a beautiful tree. The fruit looks nutritious. It's beautiful fruit. It's unreasonable to me, standing on my own autonomous human reason, that I shouldn't be able to eat that fruit, and so I'm going to go eat it. Like these knuckleheads on YouTube. Atheists love to bring up the ark, Noah's ark. Oh, how ridiculous that all the animals could go in the ark, and they could live for a whole year floating on water in that, in that ark with only eight people taking care of them. Idiots! God created tri trillions of stars and billions of galaxies in a split second. By speaking the word, God can take care of some elephants and some animals in the ark. Idiots! Don't, don't, those arguments are not substantial at all, unless you presuppose unbelief. She, that is Eve by implication, declared herself to be an ultimate source of truth, meaning, and ethics, not God. Jesus will not be fooled into making the same highly rebellious mistake. Instead, he flashed the shining double-edged blade, the sword of the Spirit, Ephesians 
He don't mess around. He does the right thing, and we should listen very carefully to what he does. Second, Christ goes on the offense with a quotation from Deuteronomy 8, 3. And this quotation is identical to the Greek Septuagint, except for the omission of one article that does not affect the meaning of the text at all. A study of the Gospels makes it perfectly clear that Jesus regarded the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible is the very word of God, infallible, inerrant, perfect, our sole standard for faith in life. That is what Jesus taught. And if you want to be a Christian, you have to believe that. Let us carefully consider the elements and implications of our Lord's statement. It's, it's amazing. Number one, and we're going to, we're going to deal with this now, because he's going to do it two more times, that we're going to deal with it now in detail, and we won't have to repeat ourselves, but this is so important. Note the introductory formula, it is written. This is very significant. The verb here, gagraptai, and it's where we get the word grammar, is in the perfect tense and carries the meaning, it stands written. The basic idea behind this formula is that what God has said and placed in his inscripturated revelation stands forever. It is binding truth and binding ethics for all generations of mankind to the very end of the world. As Isaiah 40 verse 8 says, and I have a first edition of the New American Standard Bible, from uh, whenever it came out, and it, this is in the uh, beginning of the Bible. I love this. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The implications of the statement are as follows. Two, excuse me, A, the word of God is perfect, infallible, without error, and therefore fully authoritative. It is our standard for truth. It's perfect and without error when it speaks of science, history, geology, geography, everything. The idea that came from the Bardians, Barton Bruner, well, it contains the Word of God. It has truth in it, but it's not the Word of God. That's a lie of the devil. It is the truth. B. The Bible's teaching and ethics is authoritative and binding on all generations of mankind. The truths revealed are not relative to culture, or time, or place, or political thought, or geography, or philosophy. They're binding. The fact that they come from God and are infallible guarantees their relevance throughout all history. The teachings of modernists, and this is what all the seminaries teach, and if you watch PBS or read Newsweek or Time, they all teach this garbage. The teachings of modernists, that scripture is culturally relative because it was simply made up by religious men and contains many myths and errors, is emphatically rejected by Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. It's rejected emphatically. Such thinking is demonic and damnable. Don't even consider it for one minute. And by the way, throughout the 19th century, all those things that modernists were writing and saying about the Bible being unfactual regarding uh, historical events, they've all been proven wrong. They used to say there's no Hittite empire. Now they have tons of archaeological findings. They said David didn't exist. He's been proved. Solomon has been proved. The very things that Solomon built have all been found. 
over and over. They said that there's no such thing as a five-sided portico, which is mentioned in the book of John, because they are very rare. Romans don't build five-sided porticos. They found it. They actually found the five-sided portico. The Bible is true. It is certainly true. Yes, it is confirmed by evidences. But we are not dependent on those findings because we, we have the very word of the living God. C. Our faith in, in the obedience of faith in all controversies, whether doctrinal, ethical, ecclesiastical, or philosophical, must be directed solely to the scriptures. Jesus, according to his human nature, is our perfect example in how to deal with opposition, arguments, or temptations. He confined himself to this foundation. It is written. It stands written. God said it. That settles it, whether you believe it or not. You know that sticker you used to see on cars in the 70s? God said it. I believe it. That settles it. No, God said it. That settles it, whether you believe it or not. When we are confronted with opposition or arguments or temptations, we must not hesitate for even a moment. We must immediately grasp and hold fast to this perfect, sharp, double-edged sword. Jesus being the eternal word could have spoken divine truth from his own being. He had that authority. We don't have that authority, obviously. Now, prophets would receive revelations from God by a vision or by a dream, or sometimes God would speak audibly like he did to Moses. We don't have that gift anymore. But Jesus was God. He could speak authoritatively from his own self without appealing to the book of Deuteronomy. But he wanted to place a special honor on the word of God to show his people how to resist and repel temptations and the assaults of the devil. The word of God is the only offensive weapon that we have against temptations and the, the wiles of the devil, the assaults of Satan. The word of God is the only offensive weapon that we have against false teachings, erroneous ethics, aberrant ecclesiastical practices. Church traditions are worthless and even harmful if they are not in full agreement with the word of God. Church councils, creeds, liturgies, acts of discipline, etc., that are not based directly on the teachings of the Bible, have no authority at all. I don't care if they're 2,000 years old. I don't care if they're 10,000 years old. If they're not based on Scripture, they're not binding on you. They're not binding one iota. The church has no church officers, church governors, elders, pastors, have zero authority above what Scripture says. I remember when I was a Pentecostal, I was charismatic, and the pastor was telling people, well, God told me that you have to give your car to this guy. <laughs> no. He can only do what God's Word says. And Presbyterian elders you know, violate this all the time and act like Romanists all the time. When they don't like, when they can't prove something by the Word of God, they'll appeal to, uh, uh, you know, uh, some kind of... Uh, bureaucratic thing to get things done. And that's Romanism. Throughout history, churches have made grievous sinful errors in doctrine, worship, church government, and ethics when they have not been very careful to prove and test everything according to the Word of God. There is only one sure word of testimony. There is only one solid, immovable rock of infallible, perspicuous truth. The Bible, the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. 
The Roman Catholic Church has attempted to circumvent this crucial teaching by asserting a supposed unwritten tradition and an imaginary infallibility. And it's so ridiculous if you look at it. There was this body of unwritten tradition deposited with the apostles, and then it's revealed through the church bureaucracy over time. Well, why not just get it all out in the open right away? Why do, why do we have to wait until the 1800s for them to say that Mary was born without sin? <laughs> or that Mary ascended into heaven and all the... You look at their traditions accumulate over the years. It's obviously a lie. But such theories, of course, cannot be found in Scripture. Moreover, the papal church is so full of contradictions, heresies, idolatries, and blasphemies that more resembles a synagogue of Satan than a legitimate expression of Christianity. These reformed people that, you know, they, they love, uh, so they love uh, sacramentalism and they love to deny salvation by grace alone. They're, they're supposedly reformed. The federal visionists, they say the Roman Catholic Church is a legitimate church. And why not? For these men reject the regular principle and they reject justification by faith alone. In principle, they're more Romanist than they are Protestant. The Roman Catholic Church forbid the laity from reading the Bible for over a thousand years and persecuted and murdered those who sought to publish the scriptures in their own tongue. Why is their record on this issue so demonic to the core? Because the Bible explicitly contradicts what the Roman Catholic Church teaches on salvation, worship, church government, authority, and many other vital doctrines. In the Roman Catholic Church, Mary is more important than Jesus is. And more people are dedicated to worshiping Mary than they are to Jesus. And they bow to idols. They can't even keep the first two commandments. That's Romanism. Beloved, let us cast off the foolishness of autonomous human reasonings. We must not trust in clever philosophical uh, musings or human eloquence. Let us, exalt human, let us not exalt human traditions or church teachings or practices that cannot be proved by a solid biblical exegesis of Scripture. Isaiah 8.20 To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. So when you hear people on, on the internet and you hear Reformed people saying, well, Calvin said this, it has to be true, or John Knox said this, and it has to be true. Um, whether they said that or not, you still have to verify everything according to the scriptures and prove it doing traditional old-fashioned exegesis. If they said it and it can't be proved according to scripture, I don't care who said it. It doesn't matter. You have to prove it. Jesus' statement, it is written, is essential for the Christian faith because the source of man's authority reveals the source of one's religion, ultimate concerns, or worldview. If one does not accept the biblical position that Scripture is God-breathed or inspired, 2 Timothy 3.16-17, 2 Peter 1.19-21, etc., and therefore infallible, then one cannot have anything even close to Christianity. And that's why you notice Satan always goes to attack authority, the source of authority. He wants human autonomy. And that, as I've talked about last week, Anton LaVey uh, and, and the Satanists, Aleister Crowley and the Satanists, that's their primary thing, human autonomy. You create, and that's, the, that's the motto of the Democratic Party. If you think you're a woman, you're a woman. And if, if you're, uh, you say that men can't get pregnant, or you say that that's really a man, the Democrats want you to get fired. 
That's the insanity. Satanism is spread so deep and so far within the Democratic Party and within black churches, by the way, most black churches, that they're satanic. They have nothing to do with Christ at all. Now, there's some great black churches, but they're few and far between because they've imbibed the lies of Satan and the Democratic Party instead of the Bible. How anyone can claim that they're a Christian and support abortion, sodomite marriage, sodomite rights, stealing, making stealing illegal, um, illegal, treating criminals with kid gloves and hurting the people that are lawful, if, how anyone could claim to be a Christian and hold those things is beyond me. They're satanic. And it's for this reason that Satan's chief priority and most successful tactic in human history against the church has been to call into question the authority of the Bible. And he has done this in three main ways. The first is subtraction. This is the teaching that the Bible is not really inspired or infallible. It's not trustworthy. It's a human document, basically. And this is the teaching that the Bible uh, is a collection of human writings uh, of religious men. Consequently, we can ignore what it says. We can do what we want. This is Satan's tactic with Eve. It is basically the policy of the Sadducees, the liberals of their day. It is the whole foundation of modernism or religious liberalism. The Bible is treated as a purely human document conditioned by culture, geography, and superstitions. It is considered relative and not authoritative. Churchmen and theologians then follow autonomous human reason, various worldly philosophies, and popular cultural trends to define their version of Christianity. Uh, I studied uh, years ago, many years ago, I studied liberalism, the history of modernism. You know, Schleiermacher and all these liberal theologians. And basically, all they are is a reflection of whatever philosophy, humanistic philosophy, was popular at that time. That's all they are. They're not connected to the Bible. They don't teach what the Bible teaches. They adopt Kant and Hegel and all these people. So what they have in the end is a politically correct left-wing version of secular humanism with some religious terminology. All the mainline denominations have homosexual marriage. They all have homosexual pastors and lesbian pastors. They are all in favor of socialism. They all support the Democratic Party. They're all in favor of abortion on demand. They're all in favor of Marxism. They're satanic to the very core. And yet, they call themselves Christians. The devil's second tactic is addition. This is the formal position that the Bible is God's revelation, but there are newer revelations or sources of authority that are more important than the Bible and must be used to interpret all of the Bible's essential doctrines. This is the method for stamping out virtually all the true vital biblical doctrines from the Bible and practices of the Roman Catholic Church. It is also the foundation of all the major cults. The Bible is viewed through the lens of newer revelations. For example, the traditions accumulated in the Roman Catholic Church, the Book of Mormon, the Watchtower materials of Charles Taze Russell, and consequently, everything is reinterpreted to fit the new satanic delusions. So this is denial by addition. You can quote something to uh, a Jew or a Muslim 
or a Unitarian or a Mormon, and they'll point you to the new interpretations, whether it's the Talmud, whether it's the uh, satanic delusions of the Muslims, whether it's a cult leader. The third tactic is to render large crucial sections of Scripture irrelevant by imposing a purely human construct onto the Bible. And this is essentially uh, what dispensationalism or the teachings of the heresy of Charles Nelson Darby has done. At the very time when modernism and secular humanism was capturing every aspect of society, the colleges, the universities, the, the judges, the courts, the political realm, everything was being captured by the secular humanists. At the very time this was happening, from around 1880 onward, evangelicals were adopting the position that God's moral laws in the Old Testament no longer applied. That we must not attempt to influence or change culture or the civil government. Their motto was, don't polish brass on a sinking ship. Don't waste your time with culture. Don't waste your time trying to influence politics. Don't waste your time trying to influence basic institutions of society. That belongs to the devil. An unbiblical pietism. By making large sections of Scripture irrelevant, they have denied the meaning of the Great Commission, and they have adopted a radically reductionist concept of Christian dominion. The Great Commission isn't evangelize your next-door neighbor and get a few souls here and there for Christ. It is disciple the whole nations. Jesus says, look, what I want, I want Christian nations. I want whole nations to covenant with me and to, and to bow the knee to me in their laws, in their courts, their military, the police, I want them all to bow the knee to me. It is not collect a few souls here and there. And negative amillennialists and premillennial, uh, dispensational premillennialists deny that explicitly and say it's even wrong to try to influence politics. Now they're seeing the fruit of that now. You will be persecuted in Canada. You will be persecuted in European nations simply for saying that homosexuality is a sin. You can be arrested. So you've got to stop believing that garbage and follow the whole Bible. Many professing Christians have been convinced to hand the field of battle over to the devil's followers because they have unwittingly denied the authority of Scripture over every area of life. So let us rem always remember the command of the Lord our God. Deuteronomy 4.2, it's repeated in 12.32. You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor shall you take away from it, in order that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Now we come to the priority of obedience to God's word, number two. After the introductory formula, Jesus says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Matthew 4, 4b, he's quoting Deuteronomy 8, 3. This quote is from Moses' inspired analysis of Israel's experience in the wilderness. God had allowed Israel to become hungry in the wilderness to humble them and to test them. Deuteronomy 8, 2, that's what it says. So that they would learn to rely on God and trust in his promises. See, when you endure a test or a trial in your life and you obey scripture and you don't submit to the devil and you don't submit to the sinful flesh or the world and you, and you go through that trial successfully and you don't sin, you don't give in to it 
what happens? You strengthen your faith. And you become a better Christian. And you become more sanctified over time. The statement of Moses and Jesus acknowledges that physical bread is necessary. The implication that it is necessary to sustain physical life. But there is something that is necessary in addition to physical bread. God's word is even more important than bread. For if we trust in the Bible and obey God's will, he will not only meet our physical needs, but will also bless us spiritually. <clears throat> Israel is tested with hunger. So they would learn to trust in God to provide what they needed. Yahweh proved that trust in his promises was wise, rational, and the proper solution to trials by miraculously providing them with manna. Even though they really didn't deserve it, but he did it anyway. He was merciful. And Jesus spoke to this very issue in a Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, 24-33. No, I can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor about your body, what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one's cubit to a stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For... Your Heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. And here's the, here's the critical teaching, the, the, the conclusion. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Now, Jesus, is, of course, assumes that you're supposed to have a Christian work ethic. He assumes that you're supposed to obey the law of God and work hard to support your family. All those things are assumed. But there are crises in life where you're going to be tempted to fear and fret and doubt. And he says, don't doubt. God cares about you more than the grass of the field and the birds of the air. Faith in, God, in, in God's word and obedience to his revealed will takes priority over self-gratification, material possessions, and even the crucial need for food. And Jesus clearly understood that his hunger was the result of God's will at that time. Remember, the Spirit led him out there. He knew that. Because it was a test. He knew that his obedience to God was far more important than having bread at that moment. That our Lord lived by this principle as seen in John 4, 30-34. Listen to this. Then they went out of the city and they came to him. And in the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said unto them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to finish his work. That is the proper priority. Yes, you should be wise economically. Yes, you should get out of debt. Yes, you should work hard and own property 
for the sake of your children and for sake of inheritance and all those things. I'm not denying biblical principles. I'm not denying biblical economics. I'm not denying uh, what the law says about these things. But Christ and service to Christ and being obedient to him is always the first priority. And all these things will be added unto you. When God richly blesses us with great abundance, we must not forget who is ultimately responsible for that abundance. We must never forget Christ in those circumstances or become complacent. I watched a program. Uh, somebody did a bunch of archaeology in the northern kingdom. And they discovered that right before Israel was destroyed by Assyria, they were wealthy. They found ivory. They found fancy furniture. Uh, they were doing great economically. But they were worshiping idols. And I don't care how rich you are, you can't take it with you. If you don't serve God and put him first, what's the point? Look at Jay Leno. He's got a car collection probably worth, what, 50 million bucks? Well, he's, and he's, he's very rich. Him and his wife were driving through New England and they saw a house in the, they, they wanted. Dave went, uh, he went over and wrote a check for the house. You know, it's like a $10 million house. Um, that's wonderful. He worked hard. He had good work principles. But if you don't believe in Christ, it's for nothing. It's all for nothing. It's vanity. If circumstances change and things become financially tight and difficult, our faith in God as provider and sustainer must remain strong. We must trust, pray, and obey. We must never compromise biblical ethics or embrace a humanistic pragmatism. We must imitate Jesus during his time of need, who submitted to God's will and refused to take matters into his own hands. It has been in times of economic crisis that unregenerate people have embraced statism. Look at your history. Communism, socialism, and fascism. The Great Depression comes. And what do we get? Hitler. What do we get? The United States turns towards statism, big time. With, and people, he was voted in four times. Totally a satanic president. But of course, compared to Joe Biden and Democrats today, he looks like St. Paul. Today, they're openly evil. The people committed idolatry by looking to the state as a creator, a messiah, a savior. They also rejected biblical ethics by embracing state theft, fiat currency, a purely positive law order, and the rejection of private property. But our God is Yahweh, Jehovah Jireh, our loving provider. Psalm 37, 3-4. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Put the kingdom of Christ first, and all these things will be added unto you. Our Lord obliterates this temptation by his positive response, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Matthew 4, 4b. The word translated but, Allah, there's two kinds of buts in Greek. There's, this one's the strong one. There's one that's very strong. There's one that's not strong at all. It's a very strong adversative and could be translated, on the contrary! That every word that proceeds from God's mouth has been viewed in two different ways, both of which are true. 
One view is that Jesus is referring to God's omnipotent power expressed in creation and providence, or preservation. The basic thought is that what the Lord says, wills, or commands most, certain, most certainly will come to pass. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Genesis 1-3. As Psalm 33-6 reads, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Now, according to this interpretation, which is the, the, by far the majority interpretation, especially in modern commentaries, uh, is Jesus is focusing our attention on God's nature and character. In particular, his infinite power. So Christ is refuting and emphatically rejecting the temptation by pointing out that there is no need for him to ignore God's will and strike out on his own. I don't need to do that. God's in, God's in control. He has all power. The one who spoke in billions of galaxies came into being, who had just pub publicly called Jesus my beloved son, Matthew 3.17, and who provided rebellious Israel with manna in the wilderness, Deuteronomy 8.2-3, will lovingly care and provide for my needs. How dare you call that into question? This is a brilliant reply, for it reveals the complete absurdity of unbelief. The more we know about the true and living God, the more we should trust him. That's what we have to study. To say that the Son must strike out on his own, independently of the Father, is to say that God cannot be trusted. Like the situation with Eve in the garden, Satan uses a misleading, deceptive, unnecessary scenario to attempt to stir up a distrust of God, his character, and his word. Jesus doesn't fall for it for a second. He goes right to the character of God. I don't need to create bread. God just said he loves me. I'm his son in whom he's well pleased. God's going to take care of me. Now another interpretation, this is Calvin's view by the way, is that the word of God, the scriptures, are just as necessary, or even really more necessary, for our well-being than food itself. Therefore, to ignore the teaching of scripture when God's will is <coughs> revealed to obtain food in a non-authorized, non-lawful manner is sinful, irrational, and counterproductive. The scriptures clearly teach that the ends never justify the means. We're not to resort to humanistic pragmatism. The Old Testament prophesied the humiliation of the Messiah, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, etc. And the fact that the purpose of the incarnation was for the Christ to perfectly submit to the will of the Father, Psalm 46 to 8, Hebrews, see Hebrews 10, 7. Uh, Jesus knew the word of God about himself. He came to obey. He came to submit to the Father's will. He came to fulfill the covenant of redemption. He came to... Uh, as the second Adam, to fulfill the covenant of works. He came to do all these things he knew perfectly well that he had to depend on the word of God. If Jesus did not obey the Father's will word perfectly, he could not have been the Messiah or a perfect atoning sacrifice for sin. God is the author of Scripture, and for that reason we can never separate our trust in God from faith that is infallible word. Somebody says, oh yeah, well I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, I just don't like the Bible. Or I don't like this in the Bible, or that in the Bible, or this in the Bible. I don't, you know, all this stuff about Jesus being God. Come on, that's superstition. No, if you don't believe in the Bible, you don't believe in God. 
for he wrote the Bible. It tells us who God is. Jesus knew the promises of God and what his father required of him. His trust in God and faith in the scriptures sustained him in the midst of severe temptations. Beloved, we are engaged in a very serious spiritual war. And with the craziness going around about us in the, Europe and Canada and all the nations, especially our own nation, where uh, our politicians have openly become open Satanists, openly insane, uh, we're engaged in a very serious spiritual war, and you better be aware of that. Our God-given weapon in this war is the Bible. It is the sword of the Spirit that destroys the arguments and temptations of the devil. It is a lamp to our feet to guide us on that narrow path of discipleship. It is the most published, owned book in the whole United States and perhaps the whole world. But for most people, it's a closed book. It's a dusty book. It just sits there collecting dust. I have my parents' family Bible over here. You know, it's a big, fat Roman Catholic Bible because my parents and family going back generations were Romanists from Germany. Uh, but it's, this book is, uh, I think they got it in 1959. It looks brand new. They didn't read the Bible. People don't read the Bible anymore. Among professing Christians, it is rarely read, and most who read, read very superficially without careful prayer, meditation, or study. If we really believe that it contains the very words of life, the answers to the deepest questions that men have, the perfect moral law by which we are to live and govern society, then we should actually read it and pray for enlightenment from the Holy Spirit as we read it. It cannot benefit us and sanctify us if it sits on the shelf gathering dust so that we can watch television or read useless fiction. Let us become intimately familiar with its contents, as Jesus was, so that when we are tempted or tested, which most certainly will occur sooner or later, if you're alive, you will be tested, we have the proper it is written response against the devil, his minions, and under such circumstances. If we are unwilling to read, study, and learn our Bibles because we are obsessed with entertainments and other vain things, then we must ask ourselves if we are fit to be soldiers in Christ's army. Are we ready for the trials that most certainly must come upon us? Are we making progress in our desire to be more obedient, holy, and sanctified over time? It is time for you to make an organized plan for daily, careful, attentive Bible reading. It is time to memorize passages of Scripture that specifically answer your needs, problems, and temptations. Write them on little cards. When you're tempted, pull the car out. Read it over and over. And say, I'm going to obey God. I'm not going to follow this temptation. I'm going to obey God. I'm not going to follow my flesh. I'm going to obey God. I'm not going to follow these idiots at school or these unbelievers at work. If you, we do these things, then we will be a ready warrior in Christ's kingdom. And like our precious Savior, you will not fail in the hour of trial. It's our sword. It is written. It stands written. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this amazing session of Scripture that Christ was triumphant where Adam failed. Oh, Lord, help us to follow his example. He's the perfect example. Help us to love your word, to study your word, to cherish it, 
in the old days when people would, before printing was around, people would do almost anything just to look at it, to hold it in their hands. And we have it sitting around. Help us, Lord, to love it so that we would be faithful servants of you and your dear Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.